Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the gospel? John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, beginning at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us God, and we'll be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen God. How can you say, show us God? Do you not believe that I'm in God and God's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the God who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in God and God's in me, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that God may be glorified. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask God, and God will send you another comforter, an advocate, to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees God nor knows God. You know God, because God abides with you and will be in you. And at verse 25... I've said these things to you while I'm still with you, but the Advocate, capital A, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom God will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Late Wednesday afternoon, I got a phone call from one of my Amish friends. That doesn't happen very often. They don't have phones. It took me a while to place the voice, and then she explained that she was asking a favor if I could come to the hospital and take her husband home. And I said, sure, I can do that. And they live near Hardensburg, Kentucky. It's a good bit of distance from here. And they don't live in Hardensburg. They live out in the countryside. It really was a delightful evening of riding along with someone who is a friend, talking about different things in our families, even in our faith, going through a Kentucky countryside that has so many different shades of green in early June, passing through what were literally amber waves of grain, achingly beautiful, spending a few moments with his children with a huge bowl of popcorn, watching other children play tag, in their yard, running barefoot. And then I turned to come home. And turning back north, I could see dark clouds on the horizon. And there are a couple of images in the back of my mind. One comes from 1974 when a tornado destroyed my wife's hometown. And one comes from just the past few weeks 
when the storm chasers will show you some black screen and suddenly there's lightning and it lights up this humongous storm that's reaching down to do its destruction on earth and you get that split second image of destruction and fear. That's in the back of my mind as I drive toward these clouds and I'm doing the geography in my head and I finally said, well, stop doing that, Jim, and get out your phone and look up the weather app and see where this storm is and where it's going. And I could see it's coming to Louisville and it's coming toward my end of town where I live and I can calculate that it'll be dark before I get home and I'll be driving in the storm. I couldn't help but think in some ways this is kind of a picture, a parable of my own life. I am surrounded literally by beauty, by the beauty of this congregation, by the wonder of the people with whom I work, their abilities, their their commitment, by so many friends, by family. By any measure, my life is rich. Yet there's also the sense of driving toward the darker clouds. I know how old I am. I pay attention to the news and this slow-motion constitutional crisis and this fast-moving climate crisis and whatever crisis you want to name. And I wonder about God being in it with me. I wonder about these first disciples gathering for this intimate dinner with Jesus And you had to be an idiot not to understand there are gathering dark clouds. They had no power. They were challenging the powers that be, challenging the whole customs of the culture. I wonder if any of them ever looked out the window during this intimate dinner and wondered about the clouds gathering metaphorically on the horizon. And in that dinner, Jesus is saying some things to them. I'm going away. You stay, and I'll send you help. And Philip is the one who speaks up and expresses their frustration and says, just show us God. That'll be enough. Just show us God. Take away the mystery, Jesus. Stop speaking cryptically. Take away our struggle to understand. Take away the hard work of mind and heart to learn. Don't just point us in the right direction. Deliver us to the destination. And he talks to them about believing, but sometimes it's really hard to believe. When life's events hollow out our theology, when we are gutted by our grief, when we're exposed by our own fear, the exhortation to believe rings like a cheap bell. And so in an intimate meal where Philip has spoken their need for more, He's spoken their fear and their misunderstanding. Jesus basically responds by saying he loves them. Doesn't use those words, but it's basically what he says. He says, I will do for you whatever you ask. So many have done so much with that phrase, but it is hyperbola. It is exaggerated speech. This morning, this morning, Thursday morning, I was loitering over coffee like I usually do after breakfast and glanced out the window and saw a fire truck in front of our neighbor's house and thought, what in the world? I went to the window and looked out and saw the ambulance come down the street. And I, oh, no. 
We have the best neighbors. They are just wonderful, wonderful people and four delightful children. I went over as they carried her mother out on a stretcher and put her in the ambulance. I watched my neighbor wipe tears from her eyes while she was talking to the, the EMS folks. And that day, within an hour, they had a son graduating from elementary school. That night, they had a son graduating uh, from middle school. And the next night, they would have a son graduating from high school. And her mother was their primary child caregiver. And primarily her mother. I acknowledged her tears, and I said to her, whatever you need, we're just next door. Whatever you need. Does that mean I'm going to pay their mortgage? Does that mean I'm going to water their pet elephant? No. What it has come to mean is that Mary Helen baked cookies for them. And we took our cars out of the driveway so they could get the ambulance there closer to their back door. Simple things. We speak in hyperbola all the time. Whatever you need. I'm reading a novel about a woman who is uh, in the National Guard, and she's been deployed to a war zone, and she writes home to her children, and she constantly signs her letters, I love you to the moon and back. Well, it seems to me the only one who can literally say that is an astronaut. But we know what she meant. When I was 14 years old, I fell and broke this shoulder, and it hurt worse than anything else in my life to that time. And my mother said... I wish it was my shoulder instead of yours. And my 14-year-old brain said, no, you don't. (laughs) But my 14-year-old brain did understand that she wished she could take the pain away and that it came from a heart that loved me. We speak in hyperbola all the time. With this kind of exaggerated speech, Jesus says, I love you in the midst of all this. In the midst of all this, their fear. And the first readers of John's gospel, those who were not just looking at the storm, they were living in it, a storm of persecution, when at any moment everything could be taken, including their lives. And Jesus tells them, I'm sending the advocate It's a quieter picture of the coming of the Spirit than what we typically think of on on Pentecost. Not the red flame, not the rushing wind, but the Spirit who will do some things. And the first of those will teach you everything. That's so different than growing up when they said, just come down the aisle and it'll all be settled. And here's this one who's going to engage us in some very intense, continuous education. When I first graduated from seminary with four years of college and three years of seminary and put on my coat and tie and walked up to the Hayeswood Hospital in Maysville, Kentucky to do my very first hospital visit officially as pastor. And the very first man there reached up and grabbed my coat and pulled down and said, why can't I die? Uh, Well, we didn't cover that in seminary. (laughs) Possibly I missed that day. And with one broken-hearted question, he exposed the ignorance of my soul and my need to keep learning. 
The Spirit guides us in this ever-evolving relationship with God. Some months ago now, I said in a sermon here that um, throughout my mother's death and dying, I learned some things that I already knew up here and learned them in a deeper place here. And speaking to Frank Tupper, who was seated there after the service, he said, yes, we learned those things in a deeper place, and we learn that they're always more complicated. It's one of those rich moments when you wish you'd heard that before you did the sermon. The task of the Spirit is teaching us in the painful moments and staying with us in the painful moments. Taking the ancient truth and figuring, us, figuring out for us how to fit that with modern technology, with our instantaneous digital communication, where we seem to really know each other less and less, and where we do less face-to-face communication and we so misunderstand each other. Maybe we begin to understand that the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. That the Spirit is teaching us to keep our hearts open and keep our minds open. The Spirit comes to teach us everything. And the Spirit comes, he said, to remind you of all that I have said. Jesus has spoken with voice and with behavior. His commandment is to love one another. The only commandment in the gospel, love one another. And the Spirit comes reminding us constantly of these words and how, what they mean in this. We don't always think about the situations that are coming. I have been amazed by people who have practiced love in such difficult circumstances. Those folks who have been divorced and one comes back to care for a former partner while they're dying, never imagining in their woundedness that they would be doing this. But they did. Love one another. Reminder from the spirit that we struggle with relatives and in-laws who are not all that lovable sometimes and struggling with how to do that. A reminder that Jesus washed the feet of disciples, giving an example of servanthood and humility, of the seeing of human need and the willingness to do that, even though in the process of washing feet, you just get all mucked up yourself. Jesus shows us the one raising Lazarus from the dead and addressing our greatest fear, death, and reminding us that God has the final word not disease. And that's tough to believe. It is the spirit who broods with our hearts, helping us integrate those things into our own hearts and minds. And Jesus teaches us about the blind man who receives sight. Jesus is showing us that he's trying to change how we see the world and each other. Our passage opens with Philip wanting to see God. And Jesus saying, how do you see me? You just see a a carpenter with gnarly hands? What are you looking for, Philip? When we look at each other, do we see God? Do we see the sacred in each other? Do we see the image of God? Are we looking? The work of the Spirit. 
And there's a woman caught in the act of adultery, and there's this public shaming of her and an execution planned. And the intervention of Jesus is to challenge their harsh judgmental attitudes and their limited ethics that are, in fact, abusive of half the population. An invitation to see with compassion at hearts and minds, to live with compassion. The Holy Spirit guides us in our growth, the growth of our love that embraces our families and more, that embraces our own generation and tribe and more, that embraces our own nation and more, that embraces the world and all. The Holy Spirit is this advocate for us to keep loving when we see the storms coming or when we're in them, to keep loving when we're afraid, to keep loving when we are in pain, when we're in trouble, when we're in chaos, to keep loving. And it's not easy. Third task is this bringing of peace. Make no mistake, this is not the absence of conflict. The more we try to love like Jesus, the more we become a threat to those who are greedy and who abuse in this world. No, this piece is about the presence of purpose and hope. It's a knowledge of forgiveness that's both personal and also for others. It's the experience of grace and assurance that I don't have to know everything but that I need a life that's vulnerably seeking a greater understanding of myself and others and God, and that that kind of life leads to the joy of discovery, not a life of frantic stimulus. This piece is about the ability to sit with a friend whose heart is broken and to feel our own hearts break with them and know a deeper connectedness. This piece is forgiving my own failures, my own brokenness, and dreaming new possibilities. This peace is a sense of being, being held by the holy. Just inhaling my own salvation and yearning for the wholeness for others. Spirit brings peace. Throughout my life, I've encountered what I would have to say are abuses of the Holy Spirit, this advocate. People who sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes not, who claim something of God, claim something of the Spirit's leadership, and they end up being abusive. It typically starts with words like you and should. The Spirit revealed to me that you should send money for my jet because God doesn't want me riding in the, in the coach with the demons. That's almost word for word from one of them. The Spirit revealed to me that you should accept what I say without question. The Spirit wants you to embrace the stamp of the divine on what I've always wanted, my greed. The Spirit said you were wrong. And the evidence of your wrongness is that you disagree with me. The Spirit spoke to me, and you should feel badly about yourself. It could go on. But the question is, how do we know 
when we're being led by the Spirit. I'm sure you have your answers. I have some questions that I want to apply to this, and I would love to hear your questions with this. When I'm being led by the Spirit, I want to know, is this loving? Is this just? Does it bring justice for everyone? Is this merciful for everyone? Is this kind? Is this humble? Is it open to other possibilities? Is it acknowledging my own human limits of intelligence and emotion and the culture in which I grew up? Am I willing to be open to what somebody else sees and shares with me? Is it healthy? That is, does it help us give and receive love, both personally and as a group, as a community? Does it expand the horizons of redemption to embrace more people, different peoples, all peoples? Have I been honest in my seeking about my own desires and my own sins, my own wants, my blind spots, my needs, my wounds, my hopes? Am I challenged to grow? Jesus promised the Spirit, the advocate, to be with us in those, in those gathering storms and in the storms themselves. May we be open to the Spirit's arrival in our lives, whether the dramatic tongues of fire and hot wind or whether this quiet insistence of the soul to remember that Jesus said, love one another. May we be open to healing and direction, to being forgiven and practicing forgiveness, to doing justice, to loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. Amen.